Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Welcome, welcome. It's really, really good to be with you uh, here this morning. My name is Mike. For those of you that I haven't met, uh, you might be noticing I've got a South Africa stamp on my, my hand. I'm not going to cover that up because we lost last night. Um, so I'm also part Irish, so I don't know what to say. Um, but it's really, really good to be here. Um, and uh, I'm excited to be speaking this morning. It's been been a while since I've been able to share, um, since our kind of midweek summer series, um, because my wife has had a baby, Joseph, and um, he's 10 weeks old, and he is just such a delight. We are loving being new parents and learning a lot, being humbled. Um, I thought I was um, better at a lot of things than I actually am, and I thought I was better without sleep than I actually am, and uh, it's all not true. So... Yeah, I'm learning a lot of things about myself, I'm learning a lot of things about life, about experiencing life, and just seeing his utter joy at very small things is, um, is honestly awe-inspiring um, to notice the smaller things again. So, yeah, loving that process. Julia can't be here this morning um, because we just uh, got back this morning from a trip, so she's taken him, him home. But Julia and I lead the site together alongside an amazing team, and we just love what we get to do. So... Yeah, real privilege to be here and to be um, finishing up a Vision Sunday series that we've had over the past three weeks. So if, um, if you are just joining us on week three of the three-part series, you really have missed the bulk of it, I'm sorry. But uh, due to the glory of YouTube and internet, you can go and look it up and watch everything back if you would like to. And uh, sincerely, if you are looking into this church and thinking about whether God is calling you here to make this your home, I would really, really encourage you to go back and watch those first two talks. Uh, in those talks, Viv and Steve, who are our lead pastors, uh, highlight the journey that they went on in planting this church, the vision that God gave them for this church, um, and, uh, and what we're looking to do going forward. So where we've come from, where we are, and where we're going is what they talked about. So go and have a look. Uh, if you're interested, I would encourage you to uh, look and so you know what you are joining into. It's really, really important that we do. So I'm going to do the third and final talk of this vision series, and I'm going to talk about living generous lives. Living generous lives. So we typically shy away from speaking about generosity or money in church, and there are some really valid reasons for this, to be honest. Um, I cringe a little bit having to do it. So if that's my experience, I, I, I empathize with the experience of sitting there and listening to it. And perhaps we do this for valid reasons such as embarrassment. Um, the church has not always handled money very well or spoken about it uh, very well. Or perhaps fear, the perception that even to talk about money is pressurizing or potentially manipulative. But... It's important that we go there as your pastors in this community because it's our duty of care. It's part of our duty of care. We care about the health of everyone's soul in this room. And to skirt over something that Jesus spoke so much about would be to do a disservice rather than a service, all fears considered. So money has a really funny way of testing our hearts and locating our loves 
that's what I've been reflecting on as I've been thinking about what it means to be generous and why we struggle with this, uh, potentially why I struggle with this. Money has a way of testing our hearts and locating our lives. If you were to trace back your roots, the roots of many of your angsts or fears, you'd probably find them planted somewhere in financial soil. Somewhere. Our angsts are so connected to money, whether we have a secured future or a feeling that a future is insecure for whatever uh, reason, whether we can get the things we think we need or want or we can't get those things, whether we can have the experiences that we think we need or want or we can't. Uh, there are so many things that are connected to finances in our lives. But also they have a funny way of locating our loves. If you follow the trail of your spending, you'll often find the things you value and love most. It's an interesting exercise to pull out your uh, budget, if you have one, or your bank statements, if you can find them online. I'm sure you can. It's easy these days. And have a look at what you spend on, not as a judgment exercise, not as a, a guilt-inducement exercise, but just as a curiosity moment. Where does the finances flow in our lives? I reckon that would be quite a challenging thing to do, but a worthwhile thing to do. So it has a funny way of testing our hearts, locating our loves, but also, on the positive side, it also provides for an opportunity, an opportunity. Finances are an incredible opportunity to participate in worship formation and mission as well. Now, there's that, there's that old quote that we have in our minds sometimes that money is the root of all evil. It's not. It's a misquotation. Jesus never said that. He said the love of money is the root of all evil. Those are two very different things. In a sense, money is neutral depending on how we use it depending on the grip that it has in our hearts, the place it occupies in our lives, then it becomes either good or bad, depending on that. So all of this is true, whether you consider yourself to have a lot or to have a little, whether you believe you're well off or you're not. We believe that lives are changed. In this church, we believe lives are changed through generosity God is extravagantly generous towards us. And as a reflection of him, we joyfully give our time, our talents, and our treasures back to him in the community he's called us to be a part of. So God's generosity inspires our own generosity. That's the flow. That's the, um, the process that we're trying to draw on uh, and live out. So two, two quick caveats before we jump into the text that I want to preach on today, you can already see it up there on the screen. First caveat is, though, although we don't want to shy away from talking about money in church, we also don't want to overdo it. And there is a tendency to do that. There's a potential to do it. So if you're visiting V61 or not yet a Christian, I just want to reassure you, this is not a focus of weekly sermons. This is not something we harp on about all the time and hammer people over. It's Frankly, something we probably do about twice a year. So if you've happened to come on this Sunday and you're visiting, please don't take this as something we do all the time. It's not. It's more of an opportunity to look in on a family moment that we are having. So please don't feel pressure and do come back. <laughs> because next week we're kicking off our final series of the year, looking at the Gospel of John uh, together for seven weeks. And the second caveat is I want to broaden our focus today. I don't want to focus just on finances, but I want to consider generosity as the posture we take in our lives in general, not only as it relates to finances. So can I pray for us as we look at uh, this text together, what Jesus has to say to us on living generous lives. Father, we just surrender this moment to you. We thank you for the privilege of being together. 
We thank you that everything we have comes from you. And I ask today, Lord, that, that first and foremost, beyond any practical details or anything else we may consider or think about, that we would encounter you as a generous father today. That we, we would know that you are our father in heaven who gives us everything we need, our daily bread. Thank you that you care for us so well. Would we know that today through your Holy Spirit and through your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so our text for today is Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through to 21. It's uh, called the parable of the rich fool. The parable of the rich fool. So I'm going to read it uh, for us. You're welcome to take Bibles out if you want to read along. Uh, it will be on the screen as well. I'm reading from the, the NRSV. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. Powerful, challenging. So if I were to ask you to give me your best guess, how many weeks is the average human life in terms of length? If you know the answer to this, please keep quiet. But if you're going to give your best guess, I'd love to hear a couple, what people's best guess is, how long on average uh, is a human life in weeks. You don't want to give me a guess? 400, 4,000. I can see who accountants are potentially in this room. Okay, interesting. Good guesses. Well, let, we'll get to it in a second. There's an author called Oliver Berkman, and uh, he gave this title to the introduction of his book. In the long run, we're all dead. That's the introduction to his book. Brilliant. Cherry reading. He puts it pretty bluntly. He says this on the first page of this book. The average human lifespan is absurdly, terrifyingly, insultingly short. <laughs> Assuming you live to be 80, you'll have about 4,000 weeks. <laughs> terrifyingly, insultingly short. 4,000 weeks. There it is. 4,000 weeks if we make it to 80. There are many reasons we don't. Um, there are many reasons we don't. 
There are no guarantees. And for me, reading this, for some reason, seeing 4,000 weeks feels so much more sobering than thinking of it in terms of years. I don't know if that's true for you, but that was my experience coming across that and reading this book, 4,000 weeks. Recent scientific, medical, technological advances have all contributed to an almost casual attitude towards our finitude. Almost the belief that we're not finite. We'll just keep on living somehow. Maybe we'll download our brains to computers one day and live kind of through some AI or computer technology and feel like that's a form of continuing immortality or life. Who knows what what we believe. Maybe we haven't thought about it in that kind of depth, haven't engaged with it on that level, but we still just somehow believe we'll keep going somehow. 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 And perhaps shunning death and sickness to the margins of society has contributed to this. It's no longer in front of us in the way it used to be. But the facts are in. 100% of human beings die. So in light of this, another question. What is a life well lived? What is a life well lived? What what are 4,000 weeks well spent Long before Berkman wrote his book, we have the reflections of another really wise person. Almost 4,000 years ago, Moses prayed these words recorded in Psalm 90. Verse 10, the days of our life are 70 years, or perhaps 80, if we are strong. Even then, their span is only toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So teach us to count our days that we may gain a wise heart. Teach us to count our days that we may gain a wise heart. See, Moses connects wisdom to numbering our days, to appreciating our limited time by living wisely in gratitude to God. All of us have to decide how to use the time that we have, to place value on certain things that bring meaning to life and which can strengthen us through seasons of trial and suffering, however long those may last in our lives. You might be thinking at this point, what is up with Mike today? What's his problem? I was really enjoying life before I came to church. And now I'm just disturbed. Um, Okay, fair fair enough. Um, Let's make the connection with the parable a little bit clearer. So in this parable, what Jesus is doing is he's offering us two possible ways to live. There's two possible ways to live. The first is is to secure our lives through self-sufficiency, so enrich ourselves, or trust-filled dependence on God's sufficiency, being rich towards God. There's two possible ways to live. And you best believe Jesus has a view on which leads to a life well lived. Let me also say this, it's important to say this, usually there's a slow process from the one to the other. A very slow process from fighting for our lives to trusting God with our lives. That takes time. It takes building up a trust of God's character, a track record of God providing for you in times of suffering and trial and desperation. So that slowly, slowly, slowly we open our hands and we say, God, I give this to you. I transfer it from myself into your care because you've proven yourself trustworthy. Fighting for our lives to trusting God with our lives. It's a slow process. Don't feel like you've got to be there now. Don't feel like you'll be there tomorrow. But there is a trajectory that we're invited on. And that's the process of trusting God, depending on him, being rich towards God with our lives. 
So there are four main parts to this parable. I want to go through each of them. There's interruption, there's response, there's illustration, and there's application. uh, Interruption, response, illustration, and application. So let's go through each of these. Uh, I'm not going to take too long on on each of them, but I think they really do provide some powerful insight on how to live this life of being rich towards God. So firstly, interruption, verse 13. Someone in the crowd says to him, so they're crying out. Someone cries out. This is often what happens in Jesus' ministry. He'll be walking somewhere. He'll be teaching a crowd. And someone spontaneously interrupts him. Much of what we have in the Gospels is Jesus' response in the moment to interruptions, whether it's someone crying out like this or it's someone being lowered uh, through the roof on a stretcher into the place where Jesus is teaching. Some of the most memorable moments is Jesus responding to interruption. And in this case, the interruption is a petition. It's a request. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. So I don't know about you, but when I read that or think about that, I had lots of questions that came to mind. Who is this man, firstly? Why is he asking Jesus this question? And why does he think Jesus can help him? Like, what is it about Jesus that he thinks is going to solve this family difficulty that he finds himself uh, in? Well, in Judaism, of which obviously Jesus was a part, he was a Jew, uh, the teachers were expected to judge cases and give legal rulings on matters related to God's law. So if you had a dispute that you're trying to solve, you would bring it to a rabbi, and the rabbi would give a legal judgment or ruling based on their knowledge of the law, being experts in the law. So what he's doing is actually very normal, to bring a rabbi a problem and ask that he solve it on the basis of God's law. So in this text, Jesus, as a rabbi, as a teacher, is being asked to make a judgment, but he refuses to make a judgment. So what's going on here? It seems likely the father of this petitioner has died intestate, so without a written or oral will. According to the laws of the time, the inheritance could not be divided until the older brother agreed. So clearly this petitioner is the younger brother, who is ordering Jesus to press his older brother into submission so that he can have the money. So what we're witnessing here is a split in the family over money. This could be comic, maybe, if it weren't so tragically common. It is so tragically common. It's common. It's happened in my family. My family has literally split over money. My uncle, my grandfather, didn't speak for most of my life until my grandfather died of cancer and then my uncle eventually died a few years later of cancer as well, never having reconciled, never having spoken to each other over the issue of money. It's so tragically common. So how does Jesus respond? First, he responds directly and pretty roughly to this person. He says, friend, Who set me over you as a judge or an arbitrator? And actually, a more literal translation would be, man, who set me over you? It's a pretty rough response uh, in that language of of the time. It's not friendly. Jesus is pretty upset that this person has come to him with this request. And then after responding to him directly, he turns to the crowd and uses this as a moment to give a general warning about the issue he thinks is underlying this petition. He says, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. 
a more literal translation of this um, would be beware of every kind of insatiable desire. Every kind of insatiable desires. Desires that run away with us. Take us to places we would never have agreed to go if uh, we were back at the start and at the beginning deciding for the first time whether to set out on this route. Desires that cannot be satisfied. So no matter what we do, we're under their thumb. Why should we take care? Jesus says, because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So here's Jesus' hint at what a life well-lived might mean, or at least what it's not for the moment. See, Jesus detects in this petition a twisted desire and a confusion of what life is about. The desire underlying the petition is greed, which results in accumulating more stuff. More stuff. More and more and more stuff. The problem with greed is that it's insatiable. It's never satisfied. The insecurity within never dies, but grows bigger and bigger and bigger. So like every good rabbi would have done, Jesus illustrates the principle that he's just said with a parable. He uses a parable to cement in people's minds what he's really trying to say. The story is simple, it's vivid, and so it's really memorable for us. We can walk away and remember the story. You might not remember any of the points I've made, but you'll remember the story. Jesus was a powerful teacher because of that reason. So summary of the story is, a rich man has a bumper crop and needs to decide what to do with it, what to do with the surplus. After dialoguing with himself, he tears down his old barns, builds uh, new and bigger barns, only to die as the project is complete and to face God's judgment. So verse 16, just notice that actually this man is already rich. The crop wasn't going to make him rich. He was already rich. The aim that's being taken here is not against money itself, but against the response that we may take to money in our lives, the place it occupies. He's already rich. The extra yield he has doesn't come because he worked harder. It didn't come because he acquired more land. It's a surplus gift of God in his life. So verse 17, he starts to dialogue with himself. In a dialogue, he says, what should I do with everything that I've got? What shall I do with the abundance? And at this point, he hasn't made a mistake. He's asked a good question where there's the possibility of a wise response to the question that he's asked. There's been no mistake as of yet. But in the counsel he takes with himself, the decision he makes, we see a fatal misunderstanding about the self and about God. In verse 18 to 20, we see that he sees it as his crop. No mention of his workers, no mention of his managers, no mention of God. It's my crop, my grain, my barn, my goods, my soul. And because I have done it, I say relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Augustine is famous for saying, my soul is restless until it finds rest in you. Apparently, this rich man believed, my soul is restless until I'm assured of an overabundance of life's pleasures. <coughs> so we hear the rich man's dialogue with himself, and then the voice of God cuts in. We hear God's voice. 
God says, you fool, you fool. This very night, your soul will be demanded of you. And whose things will these be then? See, the fool in Scripture, we might think of this and not quite understand it. The fool in Scripture is not an, an idiot or someone of uh, intellectual inferiority. You know, that's maybe a modern interpretation we put onto it. Actually, the fool is someone, who Scripture tells us, who says in their heart, there is no God. The fool says in their heart, there is no God. But wisdom, according to Scripture, is living in the light of God's reality and existence and goodness towards us. So that's what the fool is a reference to. Whose things will these be? In other words, your whole life has been about accumulating. But you do not know when you will die or who will own them when you're gone. Whether they'll be left to someone wise or whether they'll be left to a fool. He seems not to have taken account of his mortality, that he would one day die. So Jesus closes the parable with this application. The one who continues to labor for self alone will fail to acquire wealth for God. So the two possible ways to live, gather riches for self or be rich towards God. Here's Kenneth Bailey's summary of the parable. The story is about a man who failed to recognize that he was accountable to God for all he owned. He was accountable to God for all he owned. Apostle Paul puts it slightly differently in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? See, our attitude to life and money comes from our understanding of God. We are generous, dependent caretakers. We're generous, dependent caretakers of all that we have. Everything is from God, which leads me to my three quick points I want to make about how do we become, how we formed as generous people in the light of this parable. Easy to talk about it intellectually, easy to say, I care what Jesus says, But to actually become generous people is really challenging, but it's also the goal. So three quick things about how to become generous people. Firstly, live as if everything comes from God. This recognizes that all is a gift. We're not owners, but we're humble stewards of God's goods. And slowly, 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 gratitude begins to replace greed. Gratitude replaces greed. And we also begin to avoid the mistake of the rich fool, which was practical atheism. He lived as if God did not exist. He lived as if God did not exist. So why don't we have a go at practical theism, the opposite of practical atheism, which says that we are to live as if God actually exists. If we really believe that God exists, how would our lives look? What would our attitude to money be as practical theists? In reality, not many or any of us ever get to where we hope to be financially. It's just a plain difficult truth. But Jesus says, don't even bother going there. I'm telling you in advance what the meaning of life is about anyway. And God's ultimate gift of Jesus provokes us to generous living. God's generosity towards us inspires a generous life. 
So firstly, we need to live as if everything comes from God. Secondly, we need to practice generosity. We practice generosity. So one of our fears when it comes to finances, potentially, is that I don't want to give to anyone, not just the church, um, because I don't necessarily feel like it yet. It would be inauthentic for me to be giving right now uh, because I can't and, and I, I want to wait until I feel the impulse to give before I start to give. But I would encourage you that sometimes it's the opposite, that until we practice generosity, those feelings of joy in the giving don't arise. It's like two pedals on a bicycle. Which comes first, the act of generosity or the feeling of generosity? They both encourage each other, the action and the feeling. C.S. Lewis once said, act as if you loved your neighbor, and you will come to love your neighbor. The truth is, if you're waiting for some flash of inspiration, for example, to give financially to the church or charity or friends in need, you probably won't start giving. Practice generosity and watch the feelings of joy follow. In terms of regular giving, uh, I once heard this analogy when I was kind of a young Christian in church, being discipled in my first church, and uh, the preacher said, I kind of view our regular monthly giving to the church as slaying the giant of mammon every single month. And I was like, that's quite dramatic, um, <laughs> but really helpful because the reality is, no matter how many times you seem to kill the God of money in your life, it still comes back to life. It, it has like, it's like that um, Greek, uh, Greek myth dog that keeps growing back heads. It just Every time you kill it, more heads come, and it kind of have to keep practicing this process of putting money in its place. And I find that by committing a regular giving to church as one of the avenues that we give, Julia and I, um, I feel that that, mo that money holds its place. It, it stays where it needs to be. It doesn't grow bigger than it ought to be. So we want to cultivate a posture of generosity in our lives. Generosity with our time. Generosity with our talents. Generosity with our treasures. Generosity with our table. Who comes around to our homes? Who is our home open to? Who is our home closed to? Generosity is so much bigger than what we do with our money. It's our allocation of time our allocation of our gifts, our allocation of, fi of finances, and the allocation of our homes and our table. And thirdly and finally, before we come into land, I don't know what to call this, um, so I just said generosity begets generosity. Generosity inspires generosity. I would want to encur encourage you to ask God to show you who he is in this area of your life. Who is God in the area of provision and finances in your life? Where is God? What is the level of trust or of doubt in this particular area? I would encourage you to ask God to deepen your levels of trust and get inspired from others' generosity around you. Listen to stories of what people are doing. Let that encourage you. Christine and Ian, um, who are part of this site at Balaam, got up uh, a few months ago now and Christine was talking about generosity in a different capacity and said, we have felt God call us to, to sponsor a bunch of uh, kids through international needs. And, uh, and I just, I love what international needs does, that we, one of the, we partner with them as a church. 
But I love what they do, and I've always thought, I want to do something with what they're doing. And Christine getting up and sharing and just fanning out about, I think, six or seven kids? Eight? 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 They sponsor eight kids um, in, in education to put them through school. And they get a hot meal every day as well when they're going to school. And I thought, that is unbelievable. I'm in. I'm doing it. And Julia and I looked at each other and we said, we're in. And we went home and we did it. And it was just such a moment of being inspired by someone else's generosity and going, I want to be like that. I want to give towards someone's life and livelihood and flourishing uh, and through international needs who are just amazing. So get inspired by other people's generosity. It's an amazing thing to hear stories from people of what they're up to and what they're doing. Not as a comparison, but as a way to wake us up to being generous uh, people. And then we need our own stories. We need our own stories with God of how God has provided for us. Ask God to write a story with you in the area of generosity. There's nothing, frankly, more exciting than seeing God rock up in your life and us being finally aware that he is our provider. He is our caretaker. None of the illusion of us providing for our lives, of us being independent, self-sufficient people, but of realizing that God is the one who cares for us. I've had to face this in ministry um, in terms of knowing God cares for me. That might not be your story. You might need knowledge of that in another area. But allow God to come and show you his faithful, faithful provision in your life. See, life is a pure gift from God. And according to Jesus, its meaning is realized in being rich towards God. I'd love V61 and the church at large to be famous for its generosity of spirit. We don't need to make a name for ourselves. We don't need to aim at significance. God can take care of those things. Let's be rich towards God. So today, the invitation really is into a life of generosity. And for you, that might come, this invitation might come at a moment where you feel particularly low in your financial reserves. Or don't think of any potential way that you could be generous. This is not about how much. It's about, a, it's about a posture of our hearts. It's about hearing from God as to what generosity in this season of my life might look like. And of opening our hand again to God and saying, I trust you. I trust you as my provider. So we want to encourage you into a life of generosity as we've learned today, it's a hallmark of being a disciple of Jesus. It's a hallmark of being his disciple. So I want to leave it there, but I do want to, I do want to create space for us just to open up our hearts uh, to God and what God is saying to us. Don't feel manipulated by me. Don't feel manipulated by any uh, videos or announcements or weekly notices or whatever it is, but open yourself to what God is saying to you today in this area. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.